Um, the way we'll be doing this is we've got three speakers. Um, the first one's going to be Deck, who's going to give an overview of socialist approaches to nationalism. After that, we're going to have Steve, who's going to talk about uh, nationalism as far as it relates to the situation in Scotland. And then we're going to have Miguel from uh, the CNT in Spain, who's going to talk about the situation related to Spain and Catalonia. Um, what we'll do, we're just going to have all three speakers, one after the other, okay? And then once that's finished, um, what we'll do is we're going to have a discussion section so we can all chat about what, they've, what has been said or, or any ideas that people have. Um, the other thing... If you have specific questions that you want to ask any of the speakers, that's fine as well. Make a note of the questions you've got um, and we can come up with those later. Okay, so I'll hand over to Deck, and he's going to tell us about some socialist approaches to nationalism. Hi, Deck. Hello, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming along today. So uh, I'm going to talk about um, socialist perspectives on nationalism and uh, first of all I should really say what I mean by socialism when I use that term today I'm just using it in the very broadest sense essentially to begin with um, so it doesn't mean that I necessarily agree that the people I refer to as socialists were actually socialists are actually socialists right so it's just a broad term and it's including uh, anarchists communists and so forth Okay, um, right. So, okay, um, the nation state, as, as we understand it today, has been dominant for a relatively short period of time. And it's essentially coterminous with uh, the development and eventual dominance of the capitalist mode of production. Uh, so by the time of the emergence of the socialist movement and the workers' movement, uh, which is you know, roughly the second half of the 19th century, uh, nationalism... Um, the, the celebration, if you like, of uh, imagined communities uh, was, was actually in its heyday in Europe and in the Americas and beyond. Um, so the, the late 19th century saw stuff like of, of uh, enormous importance, like the national unification of Germany, uh, the unification of Italy, the birth of Zionism, and the emergence, or in some cases, the re-emergence of an oppositional anti-colonial nationalism in, in many parts of the world. Many socialists in this period saw um, nationalism or some nationalisms as essentially progressive, even dynamic, in as much as they had the potential to speed up the development of capitalism and therefore, as it, as it was seen, the, the potential for socialism. Um, others were more motivated, perhaps, by the, the horror of colonialism itself. Uh, Marx and Engels supported various national struggles, uh, particularly for the, the former reason. Um, independent struggles, such as those in Ireland and, and in Poland, for example. Uh, Mikhail Bakunin, uh, the anarchist, uh, spent a significant part of his life before he joined the international, the first international, as a supporter of a variety of, of pan-Slavic nationalisms. And, and for someone like uh, Kropotkin, a little bit later in the 1880s and 90s, um, the right of self-determination uh, for all nations was 
something that he defended, something that he felt was very important. So a lively debate, really, um, a dynamic debate concerning uh, socialist attitudes towards the nation state took place in this, this kind of period of the, the late uh, 19th, early 20th century. Many on the left sought an accommodation with nationalism uh, in, in one form or another. In practice, um, if not in theory, and in some cases in theory too, and, and all of this really was considering themselves to be internationalist and attempting from uh, the first international and, and before actually onwards to cooperate on an international scale. So we have things like the second international, the so-called socialist international, the Senemier International, the International Working People's Association. They were all attempts to, to build unity amongst workers, among socialists, anarchists, etc., beyond national borders. Um, the social democratic parties, particularly of France and Germany, the European social democratic parties, had, for example, distinct patriotic and minority anti-patriotic wings. So the social de the democ uh, democracy in Britain was capable of producing revolutionaries like William Morris, uh, but it was also producing patriots like Henry Hindman um, and Robert Blatchford. Robert Blatchford uh, famously said uh, in 1909 that my whole heart is with the British troops. When England is at war, I'm English. I have no politics and no party. I am English. Uh, he was the author of a a really popular work uh, of um, um, an exposition of socialism, as he saw it, called Merry England, um, which had a distinctly uh, Anglo-centric character, uh, kind of a little Englander kind of character. Anarchists in this period, so we're talking the 1880s and 1910s, uh, being explicitly anti-statist, uh, tended to be conspicuously anti-national, anti-patriotic, but they didn't um, develop a particularly distinct or cohesive position, um, I would argue, uh, concerning the, the, the rights of nations to self-determination. So in this period, certainly within the socialist movement, the broadest socialist sense, um, <clears throat> a pronounced anti-national sentiment was generally dismissed as an anarchist deviation. And in the period, any violently anti-national sentiment was generally associated with anarchism. Um, there, were, there, there, there were other um, people who were seen as uh, extremely anti-national too, of course. So if we think that as far back as... Uh, 1848, Marx and Engels were stating um, workers have no country. Uh, many of their followers uh, within 40 years were saying that, well, this is no longer really true, that workers do have a, a kind of a, a, a part in the nation. And actually, the workers were kind of the most authentic patriots um, you know, they were defenders of what was best about the fatherland or the motherland or whatever land uh, they were living in. So, the kind of strange um, uh, turnaround in some ways. 
Um, but at the same time, all the socialist movements uh, foregrounded uh, a class analysis of society, and they they oriented towards the idea of a, of a transformation of society, or at least a reform of society in favour of the working class. Um, most socialists paid at least lip service to the idea that nationalism was, was something that was used by the bourgeoisie to to blind the working class and the peasantry to the reality of their own exploitation. And that particularly in times of war, uh, the smokescreen of nationalist hysteria was used to unite the working class with the interests of the ruling class. Uh, and when people talked about uh, the national interest. They're actually talking about the interests of one class, you know, the ruling class. Uh, so a lot of the time, it was it was kind of kind of lip service um, that was paid to um, having a, an anti-national kind of perspective. And most infamously, this was exposed with the outbreak of the First World War, when, with some very notable exceptions. Uh, the Social Democratic parties in Europe became recruiting sergeants for the imperialist armies of the warring nations. And in this, they were joined by some of the anarchists, uh, most infamously Kropotkin himself, who energetically supported the Allied side, much to the dismay of his uh, former comrades. And this this taking sides um, shocked the anarchists, but actually Kropotkin had uh, expressed a profound distrust of Germany that bordered on, on xenophobia, and, and also a strong belief that small nations had a right to defend themselves against aggressors. You know, so sort of a non-class position, if you like. Uh, luckily, few anarchists, or relatively few anarchists, actually followed Kropotkin in supporting the war effort. But they were, uh, they were there. You know, they were anarchist supporters of the war, and there were undoubtedly many anarchists alongside other socialists who, who whether they're feeling about the war, you know, kind of uh, ended up dutifully marching to it. And uh, and the idea of working class internationalism, uh, of the workers having no country, uh, was, dealt, was dealt a really sort of grievous blow. Um, you know, this is the working class and much of the uh, rank and file of the socialist movement slaughtering each other at the behest of their um, respective bourgeoisies rallying to the national flag to the defence of the nation and so forth. Now of course the working class was subsequently to play a very major part in bringing that war to an end with the revolutions in Russia and, and Germany. So discussion of the support of uh, or, or for nationalism of, of oppressed nations, of the rights of national self-determination were as I suggested they were more prevalent in the Marxist movement than in the anarchist movement in the period up to the First World War. And the most important debate probably was between uh, the um, Polish Marxist Rosa Luxemburg and, and others within the German and, and other social democratic parties, including Lenin, which revolved around uh, the question of whether socialists should support the idea of the right to national self-determination. Now, Luxembourg argued that national independence um, was not really a matter of right, but of force, ultimately. And in this context, the talk of, of rights was, was utopian, idealist, metaphysical. Um, it was a nonsense. Um, she argued that national independence was 
in this era uh, merely a struggle of the local bourgeoisie uh, or, or would-be ruling class for power and control over the national capital, that they weren't sort of unified nations anymore. They were nations riven with class divisions. Uh, seems fairly obvious. Um, so the the idea of national independence per was also utopian in this in the sense that in a globalized system, and bear in mind this was written over a hundred years ago, um, all nations are forced to integrate into into it into capitalism, and they cannot exist outside of it, and they are therefore forced at some stage to either align with uh, one or, or other imperialist power or become imperialists themselves. Now, this position was, uh, was, was never the dominant one. Uh, it was marginalised, and particularly after the, the, the Russian Revolution. And the policy on the part of the left of support for what has become known as national liberation struggles became rarely questioned. Um, both on the, the kind of Leninist left and, and the sort of left generally. Um, very few thinkers, very few political tendencies adopted Luxembourg's analysis and instead they, they argued that the, the struggle against imperialism meant ultimately having to support local capital forces against larger imperialist powers because these struggles were seen as the weakest link of the imperialist system. So if you kind of if you break imperialism at that weakest link, then uh, the whole sort of imperialist capitalist system could potentially uh, be made vulnerable and uh, fall apart. So whilst there are variations of that theory, it has certainly become, um, if you like, the orthodoxy of the, uh, of, the, of the revolutionary left, if you like, or the left generally, including some anarchists. Um, so the idea that national oppression can be uh, got rid of by a nationalist struggle and that the working class must ultimately throw itself into that struggle under the leadership of the national would-be ruling class, um, um, it became you know, the, the kind of the, the orthodoxy uh, on the left. Now, some supporters of national liberation struggles uh, would say that socialists must actually lead those struggles, that the working class are indeed the guarantors of the national liberation because they're the least likely to compromise with international capitalism. They'll fight right through to the end and, if possible, create a socialist society through a national revolution. And that idea is defended mostly by people who are uh, in the Trotskyist tradition. But uh, a similar idea, I think, could be argued uh, was, was uh, what led James Connolly to lead the Irish Citizen Army into a, a nationalist uprising uh, in, in 1916. So, today, those socialists who are critical of this approach, who in a sense follow Luxembourg's analysis of how imperialism works and why nationalist struggles don't actually challenge that, uh, constitute a minority. And probably, um, I would say only a minority of those who defend these kind of ideas would be particularly necessarily familiar with Luxembourg's uh, analysis. I think it's fair to say I might be wrong. Um, I think many opponents of you know what is called like progressive or left-wing or anti-fascist nationalism 
do so from a, a kind of a strong class instinct uh, rather than a specific theory of what imperialism is. Um, and independencist movements are cross-class movements and uh, movements dominated by, by um, uh, the bourgeoisie or, or one description or another. So, you know, the, the notion that we're all in this together or as we have in Scotland, all under one banner. Um, and the, the working class politics are either submerged in this great national movement or are told to wait until after independence when class politics can, can re-emerge in a society that is um, more open to socialist struggles because the national tensions that existed have gone. And the, the socialists who have contributed to the um, national renaissance will be rewarded. There will be a, a place at the table for the, uh, the loyal socialists. And of course, history suggests otherwise. And, and um, it suggests that workers remain as far from power in the newly liberated nations as they, as they were before. So the flags flying over the parliament have changed colour. And they have over the prisons too, but not that much else has, has really changed. So, um, so that leaves us with uh, an ongoing discussion amongst um, would-be revolutionaries about um, nationalism, of, of how we understand it, how it's developed, what it, what, it, what it means, how we relate to it, how we counter it, in a world where it remains the filter through which so many people see the world and where identification with the nation seems um, natural and organic and common sense and universal. And uh, it also means countering the myths, um, not only of established nationalism, of, of the kind of homogenous nationalism that very rarely gets called nationalism, so British nationalism, Russian, Chinese, but also the myths of national movements for liberation and independence, including, of course, those who appear to reject the nation-state as such, uh, like in Rojava, in, um, in, in Kurdish Syria. Um, libertarian communists... Um, you know, we've, we've often criticised the tendency of leftists to run about saying victory to this or that liberation struggle. You know, we are all Palestinians or even worse, we're all Hamas. Um, you know, it appears that very few people love waving a national flag about more than lefties, uh, as long as it's the right nation. Um, but it appears that many anarchists have found a, a nationalist struggle where they get to fly a flag too. So now we're all or Rajavans. So I'm going to kind of leave it there. Um, we're going to look at two contemporary movements for independence and consider what those might, the, 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 how we might respond to those as anarchist communists, as libertarian communists. Uh, so I'm going to hand over to uh, Steve and, and ultimately Miguel. Okay. okay. Um, just, but I just make a little comment for people who've just joined the meeting um, in the middle of Deck's talk. Um, if you've got any questions for Deck, hold on to them just for now. Um, we've got another two speakers. We're doing all the speakers together, and we'll open it out as a discussion. So, um, 
as I say, you can ask if you've got anything specifically for debt, you can ask that later. Um, but now Steve's going to talk about the situation in Scotland. Okay, Steve. Okay, thanks, Robert. So the, the point I wanted to start with, uh, something that, that ought to be self-evident, but, but often in socialist, broadly socialist discourse isn't, um, if it's something that's that's going to take you by surprise, don't don't worry about that. It's the nature of the terms. We think we know what we mean by them, but we we seldom stop to examine them. Um, I'm not going to launch into a morass of post-structuralism or something here. I just want to think for a moment about the the words nationalism and internationalism. So it's usual for for communists to think nationalism is bad. So we must be internationalists. Uh, but, but I would argue that the two are not opposites. Internationalism, internationalism is not the opposite of, of nationalism, since it refers to relations between nation states and therefore requires the existence of, of nation states. Uh, as anarchist communists, we, we oppose the nation state. Uh, the nation state and free association are what stand in opposition to each other. Uh, the nation state, since its inception, as, as Deck has said, has been uh, an instrument of capitalism. It exists in order to provide a social structure, a political structure, uh, an economic structure for the capitalist mode of production. It is the it's the political articulation of the the economic structure of of capitalism, and it evolves with capitalism. Uh, adapting to to economic conditions. It concentrates power in the hands of property owners and limits access to property ownership. Uh, it's a, a form of authoritarian hierarchical organisation that passes itself off as natural and desirable. Uh, free association, on the other hand, uh, nurtures individual self-development and group solidarity. Uh, it's the practical demonstration that the organisation doesn't need to be either authoritarian or hierarchical. Uh, that, that goes against that goes against the assumptions of, of capitalist society. Uh, organisation is assumed to be to necessarily contain elements of both authority and hierarchy. So so free association, then, it's, it's something that we need to learn, or rather it's, it's a constant process of unlearning hierarchical organisation. So in many ways, the true antonym of, of the nation state is, is free association. You know, as, as Dex pointed out, people are sometimes surprised to hear that the, the nation state is, is such a recent development, asking, well, weren't there nations in medieval times? And that's why we need to distinguish between nation and nation state. A nation state is a, a contrived structure. It's a, a bureaucratic response by power. A nation, on the other hand, originally meant uh, a racial or more often a linguistic grouping rather than implying any form of, of political organisation. Polities, that is the the organisational entities of, of governance tended to be called kingdoms or, or increasingly countries until well into modern times. 
nation in that earlier sense was much the same as what was meant by our German comrades recently when they talked of their organisation uh, existing in and covering the German language area. Uh, it's simply a, a matter of human existence that all known human communities engage in language. Uh, there's not a universal, constant, pan-human tongue. In fact, it's a, it's a constant that, that languages involve. Uh, the, the linguist Gene Aitchison describes the inevitability of, of language change as the ever-whirling wheel. Uh, and, and the point here is that language can stand as a symbol of a culture, uh, of which language is only one part. Humans are, are culture bearers, and culture is neither fixed nor homogenous. Uh, so in that sense, we each belong to a nation. We can't not have a language that we use. We may have more than one, uh, but we'll also know when to use which. The dangers lie not in belonging to a nation, I would say, but in, in viewing those nations as necessarily the units of, of politics, in seeing the state and nation and sense of culture as facets of the same entity. Uh, and there are even greater dangers when the state sees that as desirable and, and sets about enforcing it. If we look at the, the nation state of France, uh, the territory we now think of as France didn't widely speak French until the situation was deliberately manufactured by Napoleon's state. In 1789, very few people in France spoke French. Uh, it's estimated that only 12 to 13% spoke even well enough to be described as fairly well, and that's estimates by Napoleon's state. Uh, it was bureaucratically imposed from above, French, the French language. And the regional languages and dialects were, were eradicated precisely to, uh, to create uh, a unified national identity a nationalist identity uh, since since now the state was setting up a unity a, new, a unity of interest wherever that language was spoken a national interest uh, and then the, the boundaries of the state then the boundaries of the state became coterminous with the boundaries of culture not before uh, the so-called national interest predates the cultural uniformity not the other way around so it's that notion of national interest of which anarchists are, uh, anarchist communists are critical. Our analysis of the way in which interests are divided in society is not that they're divided along cultural or linguistic lines, but along economic lines, specifically class lines. So there's no unity of interest between those with, with power, property, hands on the levers of state, and, and with those who, who work for a living. Uh, indeed, the nation state is designed to ensure that those divisions remain by and large how they are. So our analysis is, is not to claim that humans do not or even should not have many cultures or nations in the older sense, but that we're not, these are not the lines down which interests should be divided. Uh, and, there, and furthermore, the, the anarchist communists want to replace the nation state with free association. So it's that, that phrase that most emphasises why anarchist communists 
have reason to be critical of, of nationalism, that phrase, the national interests. We hear it in many contexts, macroeconomic, security, immigration, import and export, law and order, education, the environment, energy supply, uh, on and on. All, all of this serves to give the impression of, if not an absolute unity of interests, because we can pick apart any of those, uh, but at least a, a core of shared interests within a geographic area. Uh, but we know that, that there can be a harmony of interest between bosses and workers in, in any of those matters. A class analysis of power in society can be distilled into, into that one word, ownership. Class isn't an identity, it's a relationship. It's a relationship with that now ownership. Uh, do I need to work in order to live or can I live on the performance of, of my capital? Those polar interests can't be reconciled. Uh, sometimes you'll, you'll hear this kind of analysis referred to as the politics of envy, but that's to deflect from the point. Leaving aside the negative moral connotations of, of the word exploitation and focusing just for now on the, on the practical economic meaning, if we exploit resources such as hydropower to generate electricity, then we are using raw materials for gain. And even without the, the issues of environmental depletion or degradation, the relationship between the, the exploiter and the resource is clear. And that's, that's the relationship that we, we call class. So there can't be a unity of, of interest between uh, the two parties to that uh, relationship. Uh, so that's, that's the, the background uh, that I want to, to, to sort of lay out before talking about um, Scotland. So in, in Scotland, the notion that I would have a unity of interest with the Duke of Buccleuch or with Anne Glogue of stagecoach fame is just preposterous. Uh, but uh, here's where we come to the but. The practicality of the situation here in Scotland is not that the, the working class is being offered a choice between nationalism and non-nationalism. It's rather that we are being presented with a choice between two nationalisms. Uh, the obvious nationalism of the, the Scottish National Party or the disguised British nationalism of, of the Union. Unionism is, is nationalism hidden in plain sight. The, the nationalism of Britain is the, the common sense, the, the unquestioned hegemonic discourse. Uh, and uh, Scottish nationalism being counter-hegemonic is easily spotted, whereas British nationalism is it's simply how things are. Uh, that's, that's the, you know, looking outside into Scotland, it, it's easy to miss that. Uh, so in the, the 2014 independence refer referendum, the Better Together campaign, the uh, official campaign promoting a no-vote, try to walk that line between anti-nationalism and presenting us with the, the cosy belonging of Britishness. Uh, and you, you could argue that they were, they were successful since they won. But look at what happened to the Labour Party in Scotland after that vote. If you want a graphic illustration in the, you know, in the <laughs> literal meaning of the word, uh, you, you only need to, to do a Google image search of the Labour MP Ian Murray in his Union Jack suit. This is the, 
the, un the, the Labour Party of the, the infamous tough on immigration mugs, the Labour Party who shared the Better Together platforms with the Tories, trying to convince the Scottish working class that their interests lay in voting the way the Tories wanted us to vote. He's now the, the Labour Party's only MP in Scotland. This is, this is Scotland, where not so long ago it was said of Labour majorities that they were uh, so massive that the, the votes were weighed rather than counted. So whether we, whether we wish to accept that historical portrait or not, it remains the, the fact that Labour is a spent force uh, electorally in Scotland, this side of independence. The SNP, of course, would soon fracture along traditional left-right lines once its goal of independence was, was attained. My background is that portion of the, the working class in the west of Scotland whose ancestry is Irish Catholic. Uh, so the census would put Irish-born population in Scotland around 1%. But the estimates are that there's around 1.5 million Scots who have Irish ancestry. And to much of this constituency, unionism has, has additional connotations. Along with the Britishness we've, we've already discussed, you have to add the history of the experience of the working class in Ireland, especially in the north, uh, which is visible, incidentally, across the sea from various points in the, the western Scottish coast. And frankly, you have to factor in Irish nationalism, even here in Scotland. This may sit at a somewhat subliminal cultural level rather than forming part of an, an overt political ideology. But whether or not your father discussed James Connolly, that uh, Deck brought up at the dining table, as mine did, or, or whether there's just a more general sense that you feel unwelcome and uncomfortable in a place like Lark Hall, uh, with its fabled kerbstones painted red, white and blue. That's a sizable proportion of the working class in Scotland for whom the Union Jack is not the rallying point the Better Together campaign envisaged. So it's unconscionable, I would suggest, that the ACG support a no vote in any subsequent independence referendum in Scotland. Not only would that be seen in Scotland as support for a, a reactionary strand of, of British nationalism, it would also be seen as having common ground with the Orange Order and with the kind of unionism that, that plays very badly to many working class Scots of Irish ancestry. This incidentally is, is not how it always was. It's not how it was a generation or more ago when Billy Wolfe was the leader of the SNP, Billy Wolfe tried to steer the, the SNP leftward in the late 70s, but he made a series of anti-Catholic remarks in the early 80s, including saying that, that Pope John Paul II shouldn't be visiting Scotland because Scotland's a Protestant country. Now, the SNP itself distanced itself from those remarks. Wolf was very soon out of power and I lost his influence in the party and he later recanted. But the fact remains that at that time, uh, many Scots of Irish descent were suspicious of Scottish nationalism for precisely those reasons. Uh, and indeed, to this day, some, some Irish Republicans are contemptuous of, of Scottish nationalism uh, not least because of the particular history of, of Protestant Scottish planters uh, and the continuing 
political implications in the north of the term Ulster Scots. So as anarchist communist individuals, we are faced with a choice of therefore abstaining in uh, independence vote or voting yes. So I'm not interested in here, here in that individual choice. What I want to try and tease out is what organised anarchist communism should be saying about the national question in Scotland. We need to make certain that the anarchist communist view does not look like it has 10 years. Uh, we need to show that our analysis has relevance. And this won't be possible if our slogans around the national question are at best a turn off and at worst, uh, risk tarring us as allies of that reactionary unionist British nationalism. Uh, and furthermore, since criticism of nationalism is that it sees a unity of interests between the boss class and the working class, I suggest it would be odd for us to join the Yes campaign beside our class enemies. Uh, so our response, whatever we decide it should be, needs to reference the interests of, of the working class in Scotland as with all the working class and not talk about such terms as Scots. We should be talking about the working class in Scotland. Same as working class anywhere in the world. Uh, this will, of course, not go down well with the nationalist partisans. They'll see that as fence-sitting and tantamount to supporting the other side. It's in their nature to polarise the debate. Uh, we saw this in, in the response of a hardcore of their activists in, in 2014 when they, they gloried in their status as a minority. We are the 45, they proudly proclaimed, meaning the, the heroic 45% who voted yes but lost, oblivious to the, the irony that this doomed them to, the, to perpetual minority status in exchange for uh, proclaiming their ideological purity. So that, that body of partisan purists, not the 45% of voters who voted yes, but many of that vocal core of nationalist zealots who gloried in the name, the 45, they're particularly hardline in shouting down dissent. Their attitude towards any criticism coming their way is frightening to watch. There can be no debate, there can be no dialogue. Even the, the pro-independence blog, uh, Bella Caledonia, is excoriated by these people as traitorous, largely because its editor, Mike Small, has been uh, critical of the, the rival nationalist blogger, uh, Stuart Campbell, who runs the, the Wings Over Scotland blog. So there's, there's no allies, there's no fellow travellers in that number. I used to be of the opinion that independence would provide the working class in Scotland with an historical moment in which it could force the hand of capital in Scotland and gain useful concessions. By no means the social revolution, but still concessions worth having. Uh, much in the way that after World War II, the working class gained the prizes of the, the NHS and the welfare state and an ongoing post-war consensus that ran until overturned by the new right. I still think that chance can be created, but um, I'm no longer confident that it will be taken. 
there's just not the the organization within the roots within the the working class to see such a case being made the groundworks just not there uh, the left nationalists such as commonweal uh, or the even smaller group with an interest in in marxist autonomism around mike small of bella caledonia don't have the voice within uh, working class communities uh, and and they are drowned out in the the social media bubble by the the willfully exclusive monothought clique around uh, Stuart Campbell of of wings over Scotland. But whatever wings acolytes might think, they're also little known outside of their echo chamber. You know, if you if you walk into the the pubs down the road from me in in Maryhill and ask them about. Stuart Campbell or Wings that, that people would know, you know. So they imagine that they're that they're huge players, but they're they're they only are in that small bubble that, that exists in Twitter and and whatever. So what we're left with then is a case that says if if we the working class in Scotland have a a chance to ditch Boris, should we not take it? How how does it help the the working class in England? if we refuse to take that chance. Um, I'm under no illusions that that's equivalent to, to the social revolution, to ditching neoliberalism. And the SNP talks left, but, but is in fact a party of pragmatic managerialism uh, in as much as it has any coherence. Uh, so I, I certainly wouldn't be advocating for an SNP government. So what it would be about would be about the working class, about what the working class could seize out of the circumstances created by a yes vote in an independence campaign. Not about this sort of mis misplaced civic pride in having a grown-up parliament at Ed Edinburgh, because, as we know, that's that's not our, our fight. That's somebody else's fight. Uh, but finally, also, I just wanted to say that, you know, there is this lingering thing, whether it's my background, whether it's, you know, those conversations that my dad had uh, at the dining table about James Connolly and about, about the Easter Rising or whatever. But finally, there, there is a part of me that would just find pleasure in the, the breakup of the UK state. Uh, so that's that's really all I wanted to, to say. I hope it's not been too long or drony. Uh, and I'll pass on now to Miguel to talk a bit about about Spain and Catalonia. Okay, Miguel. Before you before you speak, uh, in case anybody came in halfway through Steve's um, talk, um, we'll be having questions towards Steve and the early speaker deck, but more of a discussion later. OK, um, so over to you, Miguel. Well, hi, thanks for inviting me to, to speak at this uh, school. And it's always nice to see some uh, faces from all and some old comrades that I haven't seen for a long time. Um, and thanks to Deck and Steve for the very interesting um, presentations and, and talks. Um, as Steve was saying, there's always a culture or a group or language, uh, however you define it. You human beings always belong to a group, and as you know, there are a number of different 
let's say, linguistic or cultural groups in, in what is now Spain. And here's uh, Bonnie's been kind enough to, to share some images. Here's some um, linguistic divisions in Spain overimposed to like uh, regional administrations. Um, however you define this, they, they, they are the result of um, long historic interactions and, and developments. And Bonnie, if you can switch over to the next slide, there are, we can see different maps of how things have evolved. Like on the, uh, the first map is like early, well, Middle Ages, the second one is the end of the Middle Ages. And if you look, these different regions superimpose or correspond to the language, the culture and the tradition groups that you can find in Spain, and they have a correlate with the current um, administrative divisions that you can find, which are in the, you, you can check in the, in the latest map. So they more or less kind of correlate. What's interesting is that, as Steve said, um, yeah, there were, there were different groups. There were people who would talk different languages and who would identify with different however you call it, um, cultures, traditions, or groups, I refrain from using nation by, by the moment. But as he also said, like there was nothing like, well, I, I couldn't call these groups nation yet, and certainly not a nation state. What happened in the 19th century, as they explain, is that there was a process of formation of nations, which was carried out by a number of usually um, bourgeois intellectuals. And it happened all over Europe. It happened in lots of different countries. It happened in Germany, it happened in, in Italy. It certainly happened in Spain. And here you have like different conflicting nationalisms. You have like one general Spanish nationalism, which would correlate to the British nationalism that Steve mentioned before. And you have all the different, like smaller or regional ones. What's, what's interesting is that uh, I think Spain is a very good example of how these nationalists were built, and how, they, how these nations were built, and how they were invented. So, starting from like very heterogeneous and very with lots of internal differences, language or culture groups and traditions like these people came up with the idea of a nation and that involved going through a process of homogenization of the communities. So they, these intellectuals will go through a process in which they could redraw, redraw history, like to find, to fit a certain narrative and to fit a certain destiny that they would want to um, give to the, to the nation and certainly they would iron out all the differences like if there were different um, dialects uh, or different traditions within one nation they would forget about them they would iron them out and they would come up with um, with just one version of history one version of the language which was supposed to be the same for everyone within that nation 
Uh, more importantly, they usually, or well, they never would allow for class distinctions because that would do away with what they wanted to achieve, which was, which was a coherent narrative of a homogeneous group of people which would constitute the nation. And this, the outcome of this process of homogenization is the nation, which is no more than an imagined community that they would come up with. This process happened in the 19th century and, and basically the situation at the moment comes down in, in, in to a great extent from all these developments. There were a number of civil wars in the 19th century which were fought mainly by defenders of these nationalism or these nations which they wouldn't understand as a nation at the time they would, they understood that they were fighting for their old traditions that they were fighting for uh, their religious beliefs and these movements in the 19th century were very, were basically reactionaries they were they were um, they wanted to keep the state attached to the to the Catholic Church. They want to preserve their traditions from uh, medieval or around that or late medieval times, while what was seen at the time as uh, centralism or Spanish nationalism was more. Um, it was all for um, the uh, constitutional monarchy. Uh, separation of church and state. So it would be seen at the time as the progressive force where all these peripheral nationalism or other nationalisms were basically reactionaries. Um, even in, in Catalonia in the 1930s, when you, you had like all the working class or lots of the working class were opposed to nationalism and they were all anarchist or anarcho-syndicalist while the nationalists they disregarded all the workers because they they branded them as foreigners which meant us coming from other parts of Spain to live in Barcelona and that's why they were not Catalan nationalists and that's why they were anarcho-syndicalists so there were all these uh, class divides and in fact you could get like um far-right Catalan nationalists in the 1930s, which tried to style themselves after Mussolini and, and Hitler. Um, the, the situation at the moment, as, as you can imagine, coming from all from this background, is very muddled. Uh, you certainly have all the... You have a central... Miguel, we're losing your signal a bit there, mate. Right. It could be it could be mistaken to attribute a, a certain political orientation to any nation. As I said before, you can still find well, probably the majority of the Catalan nationalists at the moment are centre-right 
Um, there certainly are some other ones in the left, same in the last country, and even if we all have in mind uh, the struggle by um, some armed separatists like ETA, the fact is that most of the Basque nationalists are centre-right as well. And conversely, you can also find people who are on the left in other parts of Spain, launch Spanish nationalists. Um, so yeah, the situation is usually very, very muddled up. As the case with um, with nationalists, um, largest part of the Catalan nationalists, they are sent. I think you're frozen. You're frozen there, um, Miguel. Sorry. Can you hear me? We're losing your signal a lot there. You might be better turning your camera off. Um, it might save your bandwidth. Is that any better now? It is, yeah, it is. It's better, we can hear you. Yeah, so I was, so I was saying, like, the centre-right nationalists have been empowering in Catalonia with the local government for the largest part of 40 years. And as such, from 2008 to 2011, they were easy implementing place all over the world to fight um, the crisis. Um, also, they were marked by um, some corruption. So they touched when the ending movement in 11, um, they were prime targets for their protest. Up to the moment, even if they were just, they had not been keys. They were hard to find their Sorry, Miguel, we keep losing you here. Um, I think we've lost Miguel completely there. Um, yeah, sorry, guys. Apologies for that. Yeah, I'm going to cut it short now, so try to make up for the lost time. Uh, so, as I said, I've been on centre-right nationalist governments in, in Catalonia for over 40 years. They were, they found themselves under a lot of criticism because of the corruption and the implementation of austerity policies. So what they did is they took the leap to independence. And even if they had been nationalists, but they had not been very keen on independence up to that, up to that point, I'm sure personally quite a few of them were, but that wasn't their political uh, position. Then they decided to promote a call for independence and movement for independence. And that's what happened. They began talking about independence, about holding a, a referendum. And through a, a number of years, there was actually an increase in support for independence in Catalonia. So you you see, like in 2003, about 14% of people supported independence in Catalonia, and that grew up to 50% in 2014. And that was because of all this process, all these protests that were called by the same people in government to uh, to support independence. Um, that was a long process. It, it, involved, it involved lots of um, votes, referendums, declarations, statements that we are not going to go into here because that would be very boring. Um, 
the high point was the was the actual independent independence referendum in the first of October of 2017 that the the national well the Spanish government government in Madrid strongly opposed and after that referendum these politicians in the local Catalan parliament they call um they declare independence based on the outcome of this referendum. And so the central government in, in Madrid, they suspended the local government, arrested everyone. Some of them went into exile or, or fled the country. And since then, the movement has, has, has peaced out a lot because of internal divisions between the different nationalist parties and also because nothing seems to be happening anymore. And then coronavirus came along and seems to be a different priority now. Um, there were some characteristics to this movement or this drive for independence. First of all, it involved huge popular mobilization. Lots of people went out in the streets, as I'm sure you've all seen huge demonstrations, big turnouts for voting and referendums. And many in the left saw that as an opportunity to put forward their, their message. Um, it's also important to be in mind that it was driven from the government, and from the local institutions of government in Catalonia and also these presented different factions. It's also, it's also important to notice that there were big differences or, or there was a big confrontation with the, the, the movement. On one side, there were the politicians who wanted to keep control of the movement and who wanted to limit it to, their, to the initiatives that they would sanction. And on the other hand, there were lots of people who once they were mobilized, they were putting forward a much more progressive or left-wing or class-oriented agenda. And that was a source for constant tension within the movement itself. Also because lots of these people who were out in the streets, they were demanding the politicians to take bold steps toward independence that they were not prepared to take. So even from the nationalist point of view, the politicians were a lot more moderate than the people in the streets could be, as is usually the case again. And the discourse coming from the from these politicians, from the local government, is that they were in a process of building state institutions like local police, local health service, local education, and everything. And uh, also it's important to mention that there were lots, lot, there was a lot of repression from the central government in Madrid. Basically, they refused to involve in any aspect of this movement, this movement and they outlawed everything from the start, and they were. I wouldn't say what well, they didn't send the army in, 
there were plans to send the army in and stop the referendum from happening, but they sent it, like massive amounts of police to try and stop that from happening. Now, what was the attitude or what was the position of anarchists towards this uh, movement for independence? Well, first of all, the anarchist movement in, in Catalonia has been much of the rest of Spain. It's basically, it lacks an organization. There are no large um, organizations that we can speak of. It's basically a, a broad milieu, which has lots of people, but they're mainly insurrectionalists and or linked to squatters movements. They form very small groups, very small collectives, and there's no distinguishable organi large organization you can you can refer to. One that is small though is EMBAT, which is a platformist, more or less organization, and it's rather small but it gets a lot of attention because it's the one organization that can be easily identified and as such it remains constant on time uh it's easy to know when they put up a statement you know who they are you know you know who's saying that so usually when you do you do a search for information on Catalan anarchist organizations and the, and the attitude of the position is usually much coming up. Not because they're particularly representative, but because they are the one organization that is in place at the moment. So, And obviously, other than that, there's um, the anarcho-syndicalists, of which there are three mainly in in. In Catalonia, there's, there's us, CNT, there's the CET, and there's Solidaridad Obrera, which is another one, but that's tiny as well. It's tiny in Barcelona, it's usually it's not much bigger in the rest of Spain, but in, in Catalonia, they have just a few people in, in Barcelona. One, how we can characterize the attitude of anarchists again uh, regarding nationalism and the drive for independence is that we've all been very divided. There's been a lot, a lot of division. Some of the um, some of the anarchists uh, mainly in this insurrectionalist million they refuse to have anything to do with the drive for independence, with, with nationalism, or even with the massive demonstrations that were taking place around this, this movement. Uh, because they thought that even turning up for these massive demonstrations was like supporting, the, supporting nationalism, and you were playing into the hands of the nationalists. Um, there are some other anarchists who want to be involved but and they support um the call for self-determination but they don't they make a distinction between supporting self-determination and supporting the nationalism also and supporting uh independence 
which is, for example, the position of, uh, of this organization that I mentioned before, which is about. So they they support it, but are critical that they criticize the overall uh, aim. There are even a smaller group of, uh, well, not a group, because you could find one and you could find them all over the place on an individual basis, but they don't actually form a, a group or an, an organization, which is anarcho-nationalists. Some people within this insurrectionalist milieu, they also say they are nationalists because they identify uh, the nation not as a nation state or as a nation, as, a, as an imagining community, as I said before, but as a cultural um, body. Similar to what Steve was saying before about a linguistic group or something. And also there's the, there's the argument that says that it's always easier to fight a smaller state than it is to fight the larger one. So it's easier to fight a state like Catalonia rather than to fight Spain as the larger state, which to me doesn't make any sense, but, but there you go. Um, even within, within the anarcho-syndicalist, you could see these differences. You could see people who would say like, oh, well, there's lots of people are in the street. There's massive mobilization. We need to be out there putting out our message. And some of us would say like, no, no, the nationalists, we don't, have, we don't want to have anything to do with them. There were a couple of consensus though. And the main one is that we would oppose, well, that was the, basically the only consensus that we could arrive to is that we will always oppose a state for oppression, of which, as I mentioned before, there were there was a lot. So, in a sense, that would put us like, against the central government outright. Um, as I said before, that. Um, so yeah, there, there was a discussion between these different positions. Um, on the ground, um, these insurrectionalist types, they usually refrain from being involved with the demonstrations or with the, or with the drive for independence or with anything to do with that, unless there were riots. When there were riots, and as you've probably seen on the news, there's been quite a few of very large uh, entertaining riots, uh, they will come out and join and then they will get back to whatever they were doing before. So other than that, my impression is that they have very little input on the whole process. Uh, groups like Embat, they were putting out propaganda statements saying like they supported self, they supported self-determination but leaders, and as for the anarcho-syndicalists, um, as I said, solidarity opera is tiny, and in any case, they were also defending uh, self-determination. CGT, they have a problem because um, lots of their rank and file came from nationalist and independentist left-wing organizations. So they were aware 
and they were aware that the Catalan branch was very much in favor of independence, while the rest of the branches from the other parts of the country were not. So they were afraid that um, if they were if they got involved in the process in any way, that would split the organization. So they tried to stay away. They tried to stay clear from that as much as they could. As for us in CNT, um, as I said, we were also divided along the lines of certain people say that we should stay away from the whole process because of if we, if we got involved in any way that we be playing into the hands of the nationalists. And, but also quite a few of us saw that if you stay away from a process that's bringing out the street, hundreds of thousands of people, then you're going to miss out and you're going to become a non-entity politically for the next uh, years to come. But also we certainly would not go out and support um, any call for independence or any nationalist uh, aim because that's not what we do. We were not content either with just saying uh, we support self-determination because that's kind of setting independence and not really uh, being pro or against independence. But that's really not our debate. We're a working class organization. We are not, I don't really care about whether uh, Spain crumbles into lots of different independent regions. That's not my concern. Uh, and certainly that's not the concern of our comrades in, in, in Catalonia. Um, what we are concerned about is the situation of the working class in Catalonia. And we are not fooled by this discourse that says that, as Steve pointed out on deck, oh, we are all a nation, there are no class divisions, we don't care about that. Yeah, we do, therefore we do. We are, we are a working class organization. So what we came up was what we call a, was the 10 points program, basically as the the propaganda from the local government, from the Catalan government, was talking a lot about building state institutions. So we came up with the idea of putting out a program to build self-management institutions for the working class. So instead of being concerned about like um, getting the means to put together a local police or or a local jail system, as Deck mentioned before, like jails with different plots, then we thought that as an opportunity to put forward a proposal to build um, neighborhood assemblies, um, groups of working groups that would take over the management of the healthcare system, of the education, of um, for the advancement of the working class within the, the workplaces, the by um, launching an offensive from our uh, union sections to take over the company. That's what we were interested in. So as um, with that in mind, we also called for the general strike in Catalonia for, on the, for the 3rd of October with two aims. One was denounce and oppose the repression that the central government, the government from Madrid, had unleashed 
with the occasion of the independence referendum of two days before, and also to put forward this a program of working class um, demand. As I say, we're not with no concern. Um, I think I, I feel a bit like Steve said before. I feel this pleasure about entertaining the idea of Spain crumbling down and disappearing. Because I'm well, that, that would annoy so much all the all the far writers that I just have brought. But uh, but yeah, what we concern about is working class and I'm working class demands and we try to do our best to put those demands forward. I, I want to end my my talk, which has already been long enough. Um, thank you for your patience and apologies again for the for the interruption before. Um, I've got the impression that this conundrum that anarchists have been have faced uh, in Catalonia is going to happen everywhere, all the time. Like um, Anarchists are going to be more often than not, if not always, a, minor, a minority or just a group, even if a majority, but just a group within the, the revolutionary movement, if there is one. So there is always the question of how are we going to react when there is a popular mobilization? Lots of people going out in the streets or even with, let's say, well, I wouldn't say revolutionary aims, but they're certainly going to go out with an agenda of their own. Maybe pro-democracy movements like in Hong Kong or maybe independence and nationalist movements like in Catalonia. But this is going to happen all over. Um, and this is going to happen time and time again. So we definitely have to factor that in. What are we going to do? How are we going to relate to these protests and these people out in the streets when they have goals that are not our own? So I think the, the, the discussion is a lot broader because I, I, I'm under the impression that it is actually an historical constant that happens all the time. Every time you have a revolutionary movement, anarchists, are going to be a part of the movement, but they are not going to be a majority. And even if they are, are they going to ignore all the other minorities? So that's so the whole situation points to a deeper discussion. But um, well, thank you for your patience, guys, and apologies again for the interruption before. Thank you very much, Miguel, um, and thanks for sticking with it. Um, okay, so at this point, what we're going to be doing is we're going to have a, a more open discussion. Um, so if you've got something that you want to say, just put your hand up and I'll, I'll call you. Um, and um, also, if you've got a specific question for, for either Dex, Steve or Miguel as well, that's fine as well. Um, so, um, when you're ready, if you've got a question, just raise your hand in the uh, little box. Oh, I can see, Darren, yours, you've got your hand up. Yeah, okay, go on, Darren. Um, so, I was not sure how to make this into a question. It's more like a short 
sort of thought. But on um, so there's, there was a book last year called Home Rule, which was about uh, so the idea of self national self determination is kind of the uh, the status quo of international relations at the minute, and uh, you get. Uh, Part of the idea of uh, being a nation is you have the separation between people of a place and people who are migrants. So my question is, I mean, how much do we need to... Yes, we're against nationalism, but how much do we also have to be against the idea of a nation? Because, you know, the, the idea of a nation is also seems to, be, seems to me to be like... A, as much as an imaginary thing as the idea of a as a nation state, because when you have you know that you might have communities of people, but the people are always coming and going from these communities. So whether some of the contributors could I don't know say or anyone else say something about what we think about our relation to the uh, the concept of nation. Starring. Well, seeing as nobody else is coming back at all, uh, so it, it just you know some of the stuff that that I, that I was talking about was the the uh, non homogeneity of culture, and that's you know even though you've got a, as our German comrades would have said the a German language area within that there's there's no sort of sense of you know it's all the same everybody speaks the same kind of German you know. I would use a, a similar example to, to myself. I, I was brought up at a certain time. My, my cultural references are, you know, bands like The Fall and, you know, that kind of era. Whereas somebody nowadays, you know, growing up in the same area that I live in, wouldn't have the same cultural references. They wouldn't know these things that I'm talking about, the way things used to be done technologically uh, when I was young, are not the way things are done technologically now. So the, the idea of you have to be careful about saying that uh, a, a culture is a, is a uniform thing. It's not. There's, we all have overlapping cultures, and I think it's important that you know that we say that. You know, yes, we are cultural culture bearers, but there's no such thing as a, as a uniformity of. Me, I've got one culture, and that's it. No, that's that's not the case at all. Okay, I've got. Um, is it something, Meve? No, that's me. me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm Meve. Uh, today, <laughs> can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, I wasn't sure. I just said. Um, I'm trying to get my head around this, but uh, it seems to me the whole problem, which is a problem for a lot of anarchists, not, not necessarily the ACG, but is that as soon as you uh, have a concept of the people or cultural autonomy that's uh, geographically located um, and, local, and your emphasis on the local and local organisation, um, if you divorce all of that, or if you see all of that as being the key thing that is what you identify with, and you divorce that from class, you, you're on a sort of slippery slope, basically, uh, in the wrong direction. But the difficulty is that um, we do have 
different languages and different cultural backgrounds that often are located in time and space, as it were, that differentiate us. But the real world that we're stuck with is one of competing nation states and competing imperialist blocs. Perhaps we should throw that into the, the pile as well. Those nation states and those blocs to try and get the, the support, the ongoing support day-to-day um, -day of their people are endlessly seeking to create this homogenous culture. So, you know, we've got a lot of examples at the moment. I mean, there's all this stuff going on in China, you know, with the Uyghur and all the rest of it, stuff like that. The attempt to sort of impose a hand and, uh, you know, that... Uh, a singular kind of language, culture, religion, well, not in religion, ideology in their case, but you could say the same as religion in a sense, to unify that one nation and its strength against all others. Right. The, the problem with that is that if you're stuck in that, if you're stuck in that position and uh, they're telling you that you can't speak your own language or uh, you can't go to your church, as it might be, or your particular, you know, music event or whatever it happens to be that expresses the way you normally sing and dance in your locality. Um, you are, you know, the pressure, the pressure is always in that circumstance to see the only option available to you in the immediate situation as another nation state. Or if not a nation state, some kind of autonomous state within a state, as with Rojava, you know, is, uh, oh, it's not nationalism, but we want our bit of the state, you know, in, a, in a, some kind of a federal state. We want to be part of a federal state. Federal states are very popular and all over the place, you know. So this, the pressure is there. The only alternative to that, is 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 class organization and class independence now there is there is surely a bit of history of that within the anarchist and socialist movement a little bit you know the ability to have strong class organizations that's uh, that have within them the framework uh, that allows them to express themselves in different languages uh, in different celebrations um, you know, that don't squash everybody into the same pattern. But it, it's something that is in our history, but it's not strong, is it? And um, it's very difficult to... Um, now, how you get to that point is difficult to say, but the, you've really got to try and encompass the two within class movement and class organisation, both economically and politically. Uh, and if, if you, you know, that is the only thing will help, help um, people to look for an alternative that doesn't involve them supporting some local autonomous nationalist, national liberation, uh, autonomous movement. You know, and I mean, there is a bit of a tradition with that some, some way. Or even if we think in the context quickly, I'll get this over, I know I, know I wrap it on. Just quickly, there's this whole debate around like Israel, you know, and the Jewishness, Jewish identity. Can you have a Jewish national liberation? Oh, very complex, isn't it? But there is history. You have the the the, um, the influence of the the Jewish Bund during in the socialist movement and so on. It had its problems. Not saying it was all brilliant, 
But there are, you know, there are have been expressions and ways in both the anarchist and the socialist movement in the past of trying to express that cultural diversity, but on a, cl a clear class basis in opposition to existing states and existing state formations. So that, you know, that is something we've got to draw on from the past. But perhaps, you know, there's new new ways or that of. I know regenerating that kind of, that kind of feeling really, but um, you know we will be weak. Somebody said, "Oh, anarchists always in the minority." Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> but uh, you know there are there are ways of being part of other uh, class movements and and class expressions economically and politically that the anarchists and uh, other revolutionaries uh, can, can have an influence if they got the right approach. Thank you. Thanks for that. I've oh, sorry, can you say one thing? Um, yeah. Uh, I have a hearing problem, so I'm afraid with my equipment, um, I can't always hear everybody very well. I, I, I struggle with Miguel in particular, so if I miss some of it, I apologise. So. Okay, no worries, mate. Okay, I've got Keith and Deck next. So Keith first and then Deck. Hey, am I, am I on? Yeah, yeah. I am. Speaking right, yeah, um, it was just um, coming back on this idea of um, cultural distinctiveness. And I travelled around uh, Europe quite a lot um, over the last few years. I've got to say, the only cultural distinctiveness I, I could see is very minor. It's like Poles like to go to church on a Sunday. And, um, you know, we're not very, we live in a homogenous culture. Our um, European and not just European, but it's also American. And also, it's the developed world, I guess. It's a very homogenous culture. And I think the idea of the nation is obsolete. We're kind of like living in a world now. We're living in a world culture. And the, um, I was trying to think of something distinctive to say about French. Oh, yeah, the, the like cultural distinctiveness of the French, besides. The language, which is itself is made up, if you like, it's made up. Um, all these languages are made up. But like in France, it's like the only cultural distinctiveness I could see was that, like a bit of fresh veg. Fresh veg is like, yeah, well, that was culturally distinctive about France. Germans like to sit out and eat a bit of cake. And it's like, it's very minor um, you know, this kind of the idea that we live in separate cultures. Nah, it's ridiculous. The this this thing that's coming up now, which is very popular, incidentally, about being nations again. This is the sort of like idea that there's this Jewish nation in Israel, there's this um, French nation, the German nation, all the different nations, and they're all fighting. It's like what the hell? What's distinctive about this one or that one or the other? It's not anything really much. It's like it's like me going up to. Um, Northumberland or Newcastle or something like that and they drink Newcastle brown up there instead of um, lager you know that's all it is anyway that's it really thank you thanks for that Keith okay Deck over to you yeah I think like the thing is that though that nationalism is still like a a mobilizing uh, thing on, on behalf of, of nations so even if like there there is this increasing homogeneity in terms of culture you know uh, you know people can still be mobilized by nationalism against people um, who like they have 
a great deal in common. You know, they all listen to the same kind of music. They all eat much the same kind of processed shite food and all the rest of it. So I think it, it's, it's an interesting thing uh, that's been brought up there. Uh, something that we could talk about. But I kind of like uh, Mike's contribution there. Um, you know, this idea that, uh, that, you know, revolutionaries have to be aware of the environment in which they're working. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, we have to, in a sense, uh, be able to to speak the kind of the not the political language, almost literally the language of the people around us, you know, and that we, we, we you know, that there are kind of um, there's there's almost like anarchism with national characteristics. That sounds absolutely terrible, doesn't it? Right? I, I wish I'd never said that. But the, the, it has certain cultural uh, characteristics and so forth. Like you know, all the anarchist movements across the world have like a, a different kind of complexion, a different kind of um, sort of timber of their of their being. Yeah. So the Spanish anarchism has a certain something Catalan anarchism has, Italian, you know, all, all the rest of it, right? So we, we do need to be, like, tuned in. Now, nationalists would say that that's actually uh, the, 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 the thing that nationalists hate the most, which is cultural nationalism, is that, you, oh, you're all right with the culture, but, you know, you're not actually don't believe in the, the actual nation state and the necessity for that. But... What I originally put my hand up for, and I'll keep it brief, is is about the Catalonian question, right? So, um, and it kind of relates in a, in a way to what Mike was saying about the 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 way that class organisation, therefore class consciousness, you know, is weak, and therefore some and, and importantly, class struggle is 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 weak. Um, so therefore, things like uh, struggles for self-determination can gather momentum amongst people that previously just wouldn't have had anything to do with it. They wouldn't have identified with it at all. They wouldn't have seen it as relevant to themselves because they would have been involved in class organisations and in class and in class struggle. So if you kind and, and Miguel could probably talk about this, but if you think about why. Um, why uh, workers in Catalonia in the 1910s, 20s, 30s and so forth just didn't identify at all with, Cat well, very, very little with Catalonian nationalism is, is also to do with class composition because they weren't Catalonians, a lot of them. They were people from Andalusia and so forth. They were the poor of, of, of Spain that were drawn towards the industrial heartlands in Catalonia. So Catalonian nationalism didn't mean shit to them. You know, they, 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 didn't ident they couldn't identify with that. And they possibly couldn't really particularly identify with Spanish nationalism in the biggest sense either, which contributed to this revolutionary kind of... Um, politics in Catalonia that was helped obviously by socialists and particularly by anarchists so you know if there's no class struggle going on if there's no class organization if there's no class consciousness that if class isn't the thing then yes people will be will be drawn towards um struggles that, that actually are not in their own interests thanks Dak. um i've got i've got pb then I've got Bonnie, and then I've got Miguel. Um, but before 
um, PB says something. There's also a comment in the uh, chat from Giles and says, back at the comment about anarchists and nationalism, I think one of the reasons why some anarchists struggle with that now is the growth of identity politics, as that meshes nicely with nationalism, especially that of the oppressed. OK, um, so things to think about there. So PB... Yeah, it's Phil, Rob. It's just lockdown hair is disguising me a bit. All right, okay, Phil. Um, yeah, I just I wanted to follow up these bits that are stressing um, uh, the working class movement and stressing the working class struggle is where we've got to be. It, it's I think it's really important, particularly now, to be uh, stressing the point that any sort of nationalism is dangerous. I mean, it really is a very powerful ideology that pulls the wool over everybody's eyes. Um, and so while I, I sort of I sympathise very much with Steve's point about oh, it would be nice to see the UK falling apart, um, I quite like that. Um, I'm, it, you know, when you, you get drawn emotively into these things about Spain and Catalonia, or particularly Israel and um, Palestine... I'd love to get rid of Trump as well, you know. I've just had enough of him totally. But the options are just no good at all. So um, I think it's important to stand out and say you're against all sides um, and to make that a principle and make it clearer a principle. I think the, the, um, the cultural bit is really interesting, um, but it's the nation that really counts there. So um, I disagree slightly with some of the early comments about um, nation state and nation coming at separate times. I think the nationalism came as an ideology to support the growth of the nation state. I thought it all came about the same time at the start of the 19th century. So, um, yeah, back to that. The, it doesn't matter whether a nationalism is left or right or good or bad. I think it's really important that we just stand out against it all. And, you know, for us in Britain, we can see... I mean, I think we should be arguing about that, about sort of uh, Brexit, for example, because it never seemed to be anything about immigrants to start with. It was a nationalism. It was the... Um, the, the empire lovers uh, trying to uh, assert British nationalism again that has brought out this conflict and it's drawn an awful lot of people in. So when these, these things erupt, uh, they become the talking points. They take everybody over and become the talking points in the pubs and buses and bars and things so that... When you've got things going on like in Hong Kong or Peru or Colombia or Catalonia and Palestine, uh, all sorts of places lately, they all seem to be going on the streets, complaining about real things, but then waving national flags. And it gets taken over and nothing happens. The working class doesn't take the lead. And, and that's the real thing we ought to be arguing against. Cheers. Thanks, Phil. Okay, we've got Bonnie now, then Miguel and Jeff, and Andrew. Okay, Bonnie. So I'd like to agree with some people saying that I do think there is a link between nationalism that we've been talking about and cultural nationalism. Um, and I agree with what people have said that there is a problem 
of oppressed cultures when you want to speak your language. And I also agree with Keith that different cultures make things interesting. You know, you go to different countries and they're not all the same. They're not all becoming the same globalized culture. So I understand all of that. But it seems to me, and going back to what Dex said about Catalonia, what I would like to see is, is new cultures. We should be, instead of these sort of people are prisoners of cultures. And uh, for many people, it can be incredibly oppressive to be part of a culture that, you know, you don't want to drink tea. You don't want to drink Coca-Cola. You don't want to be a Christian. You don't want to be religious at all. You don't want to fit into that culture. And it can be incredibly oppressive culture camp. And it seems to me that what we're wanting to create is a completely new one. And this is what it may be, I'm being romantic again about it, but during the Spanish Civil War the Revolution, people were coming together on a completely different basis and uh, creating a new, a new culture. And uh, it seems to me this is what we need to be aiming for. And, uh, and that is what's going to change things. And if people continue to get be stuck in these some very fixed cultures, I think it's it's really against the kind of world we want to create. Thank you. Okay, um, Miguel. Yeah, thank. Um, I think those are those all are valid points. Um, because, but as Dick mentioned before, the problem is there is. Mm, no such uh, working class organization and struggle going on. So w when we talk about culture, then we also have to talk about the working class culture. And that seems to be absent to to large extent in many places of Europe and certainly in Spain and Catalonia. And so would that also be a try to bring back working class struggles and and, and working class fight and that certainly has to go completely separate from from anything nationalist or or even within the culture then you can have like lots of different layers on as Bonnie was saying the culture can be very progressive as well so that's something to we have we have to be in mind all the time, and but as a comrade mentioned before, the, the role for revolutionaries such as ourselves within a movement and within a situation, within a society, you have to analyze what's going on and you have to try to find the, the well, what, what you can use or what you can do that, that is going to bring people to your side instead of just like going to easy answers. In the, in the situation in Catalonia, as I'm sure is the case all over the all all the time, we found people who will go and say, oh, I, I, don't, "I don't want to have anything to do with that because they don't feel revolutionaries or people who would just throw all their ideas overboard and then say, "Ah, oh, yeah, well, there's lots of people in the street and just joining in and that's it." And then you have to be. I think you have to be very creative in trying to find ways of putting forward your agenda when people are out asking for something that is not that is not aligned with your agenda. But yeah, definitely you have to be you have to be creative, but you have to be uh, alert and aware of what's going on and trying to find ways of putting forward your proposal. 
and usually my, my impression is that when you start talking about your working class people about working class issues is that they respond very quickly. That was also an issue in, in Catalonia when people were out in the streets and they were also putting forward well, I wouldn't say a revolutionary agenda or social or economic change, but they certainly brought issues to the fore that the politicians or the strictly nationalists wouldn't want to discuss. So that, that so there was all this tension going on. And that's where I think as clever revolutionaries, if we were, we would try to work our way around. So there's still lots of things we, we can do, but we, I, I've got the feeling that we always have to think outside the box and not be satisfied with easy solution. Thanks, Miguel. Okay, Jeff now. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, great. Um, I'm not sure if you can see me, but it doesn't matter. Um, I, 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 um, well, the problem with this discussion, I guess, uh, it looks like I'm upside down, but never mind. Um, one of the problems with this discussion, I guess, is that, is that when you talk about nationalism, you talk about an ideology, and we're not, obviously it's not our, our ideology, but, but, but um, it, 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 what we really need to talk about is, is where it occurs and, and what struggles. I think most people would, would automatically uh, oppose national oppression, um, whatever that might, that might lead to, but, it, but, but sometimes you get into, um, what I really don't like is when uh, leftists try to decide which nationalism is progressive and which, which nationalism is inherently reactionary. So you decide which, for, for instance, in the case of um, Kosovo, which became independent, but with the help of NATO, but, but to me, that's sort of besides the point. But but yeah, but I and, I and I'm not even taking a position because I really don't know about uh, the specifics. But I know that both both um, Kosovars think that they own that that uh, land, and Serbia thinks that it was land stolen from them. And and, um, and, and neither of those are, are, are obviously healthy uh, feelings when it's used against the other nation. But but obviously, uh, um, nations have a right to self determination. That the, the and, and anti colonialism was was made the world better, even if it even if it didn't bring into even if, I mean in almost every case when you're fighting national oppression, the the um, the dominant force fighting that oppression is going to be. A nascent capital or, or an existing capitalist class in 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 the oppressed country, and and we're going to wind up being on their side just to oppose colonialism, and and that and that's just a natural, um, uh, you know. I mean, I mean, I think one of the biggest problems that the left has is, is trying to decide which side which side the capitalist class is on, so we can take the opposite side. You know, that's not how we should. Be thinking. We, we we should be thinking in terms of reducing the power of fighting the power of, of the capitalist class. And when, and when the um, dominant capitalist class is a colonial uh, uh, a, a colonial power or, or, or a neo colonial power, then then there's no 
you know, there's no question about which side we're on. But, but, but as I said, it, it, um, um, nationalism per se, it's not an ideology. It, number one, it's not a single ideology, but it's never, never our, our main ideology, certainly. But, but we may wind up being in, in alliance with people whose, whose consciousness is not, who don't have class consciousness, but who are fighting against a ruling class. Um, but historically, and there were some references to this, uh, well, I'll wind up quickly, but, but nationalism was both used to create nations, to, to create empires, and to break up and, 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 to, and to rebel against and, 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 and to leave empires. And obviously, those are two completely different things. We would never support the nationalism of, of for instance, bringing France together when you were saying only 12% of the people only spoke French, but you, but, but you forced them to assimilate. We would never support that kind of nationalism. But when it comes to uh, um, Algeria leaving France, obviously, that was a progressive struggle, even if the leadership of it was a capitalist class that may have treated its workers no better at all. Uh, um, so, I, so I think we have to, to, to concentrate on the struggles involved, not the ideology, because it's not our, we have an ideology for the working class, and if the working class happens to be happens to have some nationalist feelings against oppression that, that's um, that, that doesn't disqualify them from the, from working class struggle um, but when you have workers for instance in the United States becoming nationalist under Trump basically that, that's an oppressive national obviously it's an oppressive nationalism because they are trying to deny the nationalism of other of other peoples of immigrants and so on. Uh, um, thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Um, I've got Andrew next, then me, um, and then Nick. Um, so, Andrew. Okay. Thanks. Um, and thanks. I, I'd like to pick just the point that both Steve and Miguel made in their presentations that they're feeling that within this uh, current waves of uh, national nationalism in both Scotland and in Catalonia, there are opportunities, there are opportunities within there, if only we can't just walk away and ignore them, there's something really sort of quite big changes going on, and I don't want to run down cultural or ideological issues or anything like that, but I do want to get back to the economics of this as well, and to me, um, a lot of a lot of so-called nationalism is just uh, window dressing in, in, in a way for so what are basically economic struggles uh, underneath it. So a um, UK government clearly is not nationalist. It's neoliberal. You know, it, it is opening the country up for sale to whoever wants to come and get it. It, it uses nationalism, obviously, as a divide and rule, flag-waving smokescreen. Um, and... I noticed that uh, it's really regions. So what strikes me about Catalonia and Lombardy and British Columbia and to a certain extent Scotland's past is these were very economically productive or still are very economically profitable and productive regions. And part of that 
nationalism, that I call it regionalism rather than nationalism, is to try and hold on to those resources and not see them redistributed elsewhere. Um, I think uh, what interests me, for example, about Brexit is that the opposition to Brexit is in some ways driven to decisions being made over jobs and the economy being made a long way away. Um, and somehow that manifests itself as some kind of English nationalism. But now we've got this reality it's becoming clearer and clearer that English nationalism isn't English nationalism. It's actually the nationalism of South East England. And therefore you're getting all sorts of things coming up in the North and you're getting local politicians cashing in on this kind of regionalism as well. So I think, I think that whole area of English nationalism is being threatened by the economics underneath it anyway. And the smokescreen that the government's using is going to get torn apart. And I think there are opportunities in there. That's my point. Okay, thanks, Andrew. Um, just um, before, well, I did say it was me next, but uh, Nick's just reminded me that we've got John as well, who I didn't see. Um, but before we go to John, um, we've got a couple of comments here. I'll just read them through from anti-capitalist autonomous Belfast. says, we have to organise according to class, Nationalism is sectarian and the nation state renders those outside it as illegal or other. Our work is to acknowledge the silos that people place themselves in and unify them by class with a clear push towards liberation from all senses or incarnations of a state. Over here, the um, Belfast, um, we have a worrying battle against both British and Irish nationalism, which keep the poor oppressed under a state. British or Irish. Unity at all costs. Class consciousness is too wrapped up in nation-state flags. By carving out our spaces free of the state, we will dismantle it. Um, okay. Um, thanks for that. Um, we'll go to John now. And then uh, okay, me and yeah, then am Nick. I, am, I, am I audible? You're audible. Great, thanks. Um, I suppose I'm just carrying on with the same point, maybe even a bland, a bland version of what other people have been saying more impressively, but kind of the case-by-case case approach. I mean, at one level, nationalism is clearly not our territory. It's not the lens we'd bring to it, but it does depend on situations. Obviously, there are different kind of national movements, sometimes focused on versions of independence, sometimes referenda about language and culture and sometimes kind of strange things like Brexit and you know as people talked about sometimes there are possibilities in there but those possibilities always go back to the strength of working class organization the ideas in the work in working class movements and I suppose if you take Brexit again it, it's it's kind of an example of that that failure, you know. That there was a moment there of opposition to politicians, a feeling of alienation. That well, the, there never really was a lexic position. There was never anything that we collectively had an input into. 
and whether that's seen as the failure of people like us or just about a kind of weakness of working class politics, it, it has rolled forward as this ridiculous debate between, you know, versions of EU-run multiculturalism and identity politics against English nationalism, something we never got a toehold into, led to a yet more reactionary government with Johnson. So it's almost like a little rolling case study of what can go wrong without our input. I don't know where our input would have been, but I suppose it's just, again, just the idea that this is, this is why I'm making such a bland point, really. It really, it just depends. It depends on historical circumstances and conditions in, you know, particular settings. Uh, well, that, that's about it, really. Thank you. Um, okay, I'm going to come in a little bit and then I've got Nick. Um, something Bonnie mentioned earlier about uh, culture um, and the oppressiveness of culture, I think, was a really good point. Um, and I think um, one of the things about about culture, it's all false anyway, in, in a way, because what stands for culture is variations on some aspects of capitalism. Um, it's all, all culture as we know it is capitalist culture because it all takes place within the realms of this capitalist system we all live under. So there's, there's always going to be a degree that you look at, oh yeah, that's my culture. And if it's anything beyond, as Keith puts it, cake and tea, you know, then it's, there's something often more sinister behind it. And this can be very oppressive. Um, the only culture that is worth a mention is the one that we have to create ourselves as, as, a, as a class, uh, as part of a revolutionary um, uh, culture with revolutionary ideas as a revolutionary movement or part of resistance. That's the only culture that I see as, as, as worth building on. But I think everything else is... is um, as it does, will tend to have its uh, oppressiveness. Um, somebody mentioned earlier in the chat about nationalism being part of um, uh, being related to a form of identity politics. I'd say it's a fundamental identity politics. Okay, when, whenever people talk about identity, um, people on the left often talk about identity. Very often they'll say, oh, "But we don't mean nationalism," or they won't even mention nationalism. But that is also their identities, whether it's cultural identities, it's often implicit in, it's often implicit in, in what people talk about uh, when the people talk about various forms of identity politics. Um, so um, the, the, there was a comment earlier about um, um, anti-colonialist movements. And I think, um, I mean, it, it, it's an interesting point, but this is, these are things that have been pretty standard on the left for, for the last 150 years. Um, the rights of self-determination and things like that. But at the end of the day, um, it's the rights of self-determination. We're talking about a nation state, capitalism. Yes, there are progressive forces. There might well be progressive forces within any anti-colonial movement. But ultimately, they all end up as the same old capitalist racket. Right? And this is something that we have to oppose from the get-go. Okay, yes, we might be sympathetic, and we might be on the lookout for for class movements within sort of anti-colonial struggles. 
okay, because they do exist. But we have to be very, very um, discriminating, if you like, um, on, on that. Not just sort of say, oh, yeah, we support the anti-colonial movement, but what are the class elements in these? What are the working class struggle and the revolutionary elements, not the nationalist elements in any, any of this? Um, so um, the last thing I wanted to say on this was, was over the last 20, 30, 40 years, I, I think there's been quite a, a massive, well, there's been a massive increase in nationalism. Um, I mean, if you look at things like in this country, the whole poppy thing, the poppy day thing is not poppy day anymore. It's poppy day 365 days of the years. And you've got people who are keen to show their, their poppy flags off. You've got people flying poppy flags in their back gardens and all kinds of things, you know. Um, and and this is something that is a sort of built up. And often it's within what, you know, with it's, it's often ordinary working class people who are doing that. And there's an increase of nationalist ideas across the working class. Right. Um, why has that come about? How has that come about? But partly, I'd say it's because, uh, partly answering this is because low class consciousness that's completely disappeared in many ways. Right? And so it's getting replaced by, with this nationalist rubbish. Um, but it's not just that. It's not just in this country. We can't just say, oh, yeah, it's 40 years after th of Thatcherism and post Thatcherism. I think we also have to look at this is happening in a lot of other countries as well this upsurging nationalism and so what's behind all this why is this happening now okay so um just before nick speaks bonnie's reminded me to um mention her little text in there the acg will be holding regular public meetings under the at the cafe a space where we can implore explore important issues together that was meant to be at the end rob you don't have to interrupt well, what are you putting in there for because i'm never gonna i'm never gonna re remember to scroll back send it to me later okay or you say it later all right so let's scrub that okay um right then um nick off you go finally um, yeah, um, before uh, independence in Algeria, um, the, um, the various nationalist factions, either the one organised around Masai Hajj or the, the, the group that came out on top in the end, the Front de, de Liberation Nationale, FLN, uh, were, were appealing, you know, uh, in a progressive way. They were made out they were progressive, they were in favour of workers, control, etc. Um, as soon as they came to power in 1962, the following year, they, uh, the FLN issued a, a thing called a nationality code. Um, that means if you were, weren't a Muslim, then you were deprived of citizenship. Now, there were 140,000 Jews in, uh, in um, Algeria, at that time, and they've been there since, uh, um, I think, for an extremely long time, many centuries. They're also the uh, Piedmont minority. It, it wasn't just the French, you know, it was people like Albert Camus and all that. There's also a, a Spanish minority, you know, and a lot of them were refugees from the Spanish Civil War. Um, all of these people were thrust out of, um, or pushed out of Algeria with, with this new uh, nationalism. You know, uh, uh, following that, you know, we've got this horrendous civil war that went on, you know, uh, and it was, it was connivance between the, the Islamic fundamentalists 
uh, and the actual uh, um, government, you know, has caused bloodshed, you know, um, and, and, and various progressive elements within Algerian society were, were shut down, were murdered, you know, so you've got like the Rai, a lot of the Rai musicians, the, the leading Rai musicians, they, they were murdered, you know, because they were talking about um, things that weren't, that, 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 that broke with, uh, with, with Islam, like drinking and enjoying yourself. Um, you know, so I'd argue, you know, things weren't any better for for the Algerian working class with with with, with the government of nationalism. You don't support one um, power against another because you think it's anti-imperialist. You think it's anti-colonialist. I refuse. I mean, I refuse to support fucking. Um, um, Saddam Hussein against the Americans. You know, for me, they were both equally as bad. You know, uh, Saddam Hussein was was the guy who, who, who launched a massacre against the Kurdish people. You know, how, and yet some leftists decided they were going to support, uh, uh, you know, t uh, uh, Saddam Hussein because he, he he was opposed to the to the great imperialist power. So you know. I, 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 I'm, I'm sorry, it was a pull by what Jeff had to say, that somehow, you know, they're these progressive anti-colonialist countries. There aren't. They're all enemies. All nationalisms are enemies of the working class. They're enemies of, of, of the people. Full stop. I've got um, Bemi followed by Deck. Bemi. Sorry, can you hear me? Can you hear yeah. me? Yes. Um, okay. Now I was just thinking about nationalism and how it seems to be like a very. Um, it, it seems to um, de be derived from a very loop-sided version of what it means to be working class. So, like for example, here in Britain, they keep using the term the "working class," the ordinary, the ordinary man. And for me, that sounds like a euphemism for. Or what, like white, white man working in an industrial job or something like that, that, you know, that is, that is like retired and managed to like buy a house under Thatcher. I mean, if, for example, we're supposed to like um, have a very like um, a comprehensive definition of, of the British working class, shouldn't we also be including um, seasonal workers from Eastern Europe that are here picking strawberries and, and shouldn't we also be including um, the Chinese and Indonesian based workers that are producing producing junk that British people consume and take for granted um, that, that's just really my question there just seems to be a very loop-sided version of, 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 of the working class and I think it's just a lot more uh, comprehensive it's a bit more complex and comprehensive and, and fluid and I think if we can at least just get that right then maybe then we can also challenge this notion of, of nationalism thanks Bemi um, we've got deck next followed by Bonnie um. yeah I mean I'd agree with that uh, Bemi this, this just said that um, but I think this this um, this idea that the the working class is 
you know, we get this this term, the white working class, right? And we've never talked, you know, revolutionaries never talked about the white working class because we think the working class isn't just, you know, white factory workers or, or all the rest of it. That's that's kind of a a, a narrative that the the, the bosses, the, the the rich, like to you know promote because they want to promote division. You know, you never hear about the black working class. You know, that's not the kind of a term that's, that's ever u- ever used really by the, the you know the the sort of media and so forth. We never hear about the the working class as anything other than being this this white working class, this disgruntled white working class, right? So I think you know it is important to kind of kick that sort of idea of what the working class is, i.e., being you know fucking pardon my French gammon people and all the rest of it. I look like a bit of a gammon myself. I know that, but um, do you know what I mean? It's just got to be kicked right out of the window. Now, um, what was I going to say? Uh, yeah, I was going to say like it's dead hard to um, to struggle in a situation where nationalism <laughs> has momentum, right? That has uh, like a grip on people or in a large number of people. I mean, here in Scotland, for example, you know the you know uh, the independence movement, you know has a kind of a grip, a, a certain grip on people, people who would not consider themselves to be necessarily nationalists at all, right? So many people, uh, you know, on the left have, like, gone into the Scottish National Party or have gone along with the Scottish National Party. They will give their vote to the SNP. They have mass mobilisations up here. I mentioned in my talk about this all-under-one-banner thing. Yeah, that's that's the name of this mobilizing organization. Right. And it's you know, they can organize tens and tens of thousands of people. They can organize like 10,000 people in a, in a small city like um, Inverness or whatever. Right. And it's a sea of, of salt tires and um, a, a sea of lions rampant. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's, there's, there's no sense of anything apart from nationalism. Yet they would probably say that, no, it's not nationalist, it's, it's pro-independence. I think one of the problems is that there is a kind of a, a left cover for this as well. So I think, you know, you have things like the, the radical independence um, conference and people like that up here in Scotland who have this kind of, you know, we're not nationalists, you know, nationalism's, you know, crap and the SNP is a bourgeois party and all the rest of it. But, you know, we, we see ourselves as, as pro-independence and pro-independence is anti-imperialist and it will weaken the, the British state and so forth, right? And, you know, might well, you know, uh, momentarily or for a short time weaken the British state, right? But it doesn't mean that the, the new Scottish state won't be integrated into world capitalism, won't be integrated into, you know, the uh, NATO and the European Union and all the rest of it, or capitalist organisations. Um, but it is very, very hard to kind of, you know, stand against that or to be critical of that in, in that context, where there is this kind of, this rush without being tarred as, um, you know, uh, as, as, as a unionist, right? As a, a British nationalist, yeah? Um, and it is, it is a difficult situation, and then Steve alluded to that. Uh, you know, absolutely, you know, we don't say, you know, in, during the... Um, during the uh, uh, 
independence referendum in, in 2014. You know, we weren't saying, I don't think there were any anarchists, I know one individual anarchist that voted no. So the vast majority of anarchists either uh, as individuals um, voted yes or are abstained. Right, but we didn't take a part in the in in the yes movement. Thankfully, I mean there were individuals, certainly individuals who did. But then there was people who call themselves anarchists that support all kinds of bullshit. People who call themselves Marxists and communists do the same, right? But for the most part, we 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 didn't. And uh, but the the pressure is definitely there because you can be dismissed as. Uh, a unionist and so forth. Uh, so it is, is problematic. And, uh, you know, the great sections of the left don't help. Uh, their, their, their politics of, uh, of uh, support for, essentially support for nationalism, uh, but from a kind of a left position, left nationalism, it's, um, it's difficult. That was a bit of a rant, wasn't it? Mm. Thanks, Deck. Um, I've just got, uh, before Bonnie speaks, I'm just going to read back one of the comments here from uh, Danny, who says, I just add all nationalisms as a political, historical force are reactionary and doomed to fail. Even the nationalisms of oppressed, our cross-class alliances, always end up with a dominant social group taking power, like Ireland or South Africa, just off the top of my head. Our job isn't to reinforce the mental fog of nationalism, but to expose its limitations and class contradictions. Due to imperialism, class struggle unfortunately commonly takes the form of nationalist struggles. While we can support national liberation, self-determination, etc., class struggle anarchists have a duty to always bring up how these national liberation movements invariably turn against the class struggle in the end. Um, and Phil says, how can anyone support nationalist struggles and say it always against class struggle? This sounds like the Trotskyist approach to con new members. Tell the truth. The working class can bear it. Okay. Um, Bonnie, over to you. I wanted to add, uh, is it a disagreement? I'm not sure with Rob. Um, I don't think all culture is the product of capitalism. Because what you, but what you pointed out is you have to look at where culture has come from. And all culture is the product of some kind of oppressive or hierarchical system sometime in the past. So even though it might not have emerged under the current capitalist system, it will have emerged in another oppressive system. One of the main examples, of course, is religion. So a lot of religions emerged when agriculture first took hold and there were higher, you know, groups of people began to take control of the surplus and, and the world religions emerged during this time. You look at all the culture you know, that emerged out of the, you know, the origins of humanity with, with patriarchy. You know, there's still loads of rituals and aspects of culture that are really wedded, you know, in sort of thousands of years of history, you know, an oppressive history. So it's not just capitalism. It's a whole history of oppression that a lot of these things have come out of. Now, one example in our own, even though I'm American, in our own dear country, is, of course, Guy Fawkes Day. You know, I mean, you just read about the origins of that, and it's just ludicrous, you know. I mean, why we even celebrate it, you know. Um, you know, the thing, you know, you know, pretty horrible, really, the whole, you know, the idea of all the anti-Catholic uh, sentiment and everything. But, but in a way, I thought what we do is people still like celebrating November 5th, but people have changed it. 
you know, people were burning effigies of Thatcher, burning effigies of all sorts of people. So there was a, you know, historic ritual that was part of English culture, um, but we've sort of made it our own and, and transformed it. It just seems to me that we've got to keep that in mind. Yes, look at where some of this is coming from. And then you realize it has come from exploitative, oppressive systems at some point in the past. And you can either take them over and completely change them or create our own culture. Okay, thanks, Bonnie. Um, I've got Mike next and I've got... Um, Keith, did you have your hand up? Well, Mike anyway. Yeah, okay. I just wanted to pick up on partly on what Bonnie said and partly on what you said, Rob. Um, a sort of in between to those two discussions, because you could say, well, yes, not just capitalist culture, but the cultures that have emerged over its, all from all class societies and pre-capitalist societies, all sorts of things have evolved over a very long period of time. Um, and some of what's emerged are part of the process of struggle against it, as well as, you know, being influenced by it in the, the oppressive way. But there are also things that have emerged out of the struggles of, of uh, oppressed people and, you know, peasants, uh, the peasant rebellions and, uh, and the working class over long periods of time. So it's a to and fro uh, of evolution over a long period of time. We're still stuck with a class society and a specifically a capitalist class society now. And I kind of, when Rob, you spoke, Rob, I kind of thought, well, yes, you're right here. Um, the one thing that was nagging in the back of my mind was something uh, well, it was a discussion with Nick, I think, a long time back when uh, I think it was when the ACG split from the AF. But there was a point there was a point that somebody made to me and saying, you know, uh, you're right, Rob, but we've got to be. Uh, how's the word? I, I, I would could say pragmatic. How about just realistic that uh, we, you know, we, we don't live in a free society. We don't live in communism. Uh, we may be involved in some struggles. We may benefit from some past struggles. But we're in a process that is a long way from where we want to achieve it. And uh, as somebody else said, anarchists are generally in the minority, by the way. And that creates a big problem because we have to relate to the rest of the working class. Uh, we've got, we have still bear some identities. We're not the perfect, you know, class struggle revolutionary that is not imbued with any of these other problems and oppressions that we all suffer. So we're none of us perfect. And certainly our fellow workers are a mixed bunch and uh, things evolve and they're, they're not all the same. I was trying to think of an example. I can't think of a good example. But when people talk about religion, religion was mentioned specifically as being oppressive. Cultures uh, related to religion. And the whole Jewish thing came immediately back to me because there's a whole big discussion going around now, you know, amongst um, what people that describe themselves as secular Jews, right? They don't support the religion they're uh, you know they're radical in all sorts of other ways but they still involve themselves in various uh, language things uh, i don't know uh, eat what they eat uh, even what they celebrate from time to time that would distinguish them 
massively from everything else that we regard as the most oppressive natures of that. And, and who knows, and let's hope, things will evolve further under the influence of struggle against all these things. They will evolve, but it's a slow process. And we can't just, uh, you know, we can't push something that we haven't yet created and are not in a position to create on our own. You know, it's got to be part of a much bigger struggle. So we've got to be pretty realistic about that. And I think on the whole, the ACG has been realistic about it. Some anarchists, I suspect, are not very realistic about it, really. Um, when you talk about identity politics, that's where it all starts to go sadly wrong because they want, they want their little group, their little bloody uh, political group, to somehow express all that is best as though it was socialism, as though it was communism or it was anarchism. But we ain't got there yet. You know, we're still working on it and we have to be a bit realistic about that. OK, thank okay. you. Thank I'll you. I'll put myself on mute now. <laughs> OK, man. Um, got a comment here from Mikey. Um, says, I think we need to define culture. We have anarchist culture, capitalist culture, workers' culture. Culture can be positive and negative. That is one of its problems. And Deck says, yes, some of the struggles against oppression are co-opted into nationalist narratives. Okay. And speaking one's own language, for example, singing one's own song and chomping one's own nosh. Okay. And where and Keith says, and wearing one's own clothes, Deck. <laughs> okay. Keith, did you have your hand up earlier? Um, no, if not, um, we're out of we're out of people commenting. That's that's all the speakers. Unless anybody's itching to say anything. Oh, Deck is Deck wants to say something. Or is that I am I'm wearing my own clothes. <laughs> yes, I, I'm I'm wearing a, a skirt a skirt a, a kilt at the moment. <laughs> okay. It's not a skirt. It's a kilt. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'm wearing trues, tartan trues. I look like um, fucking Rupert the Bear here. Is that your comment? I've got anything to say now. <laughs> okay. Sorry. So, <laughs> it's looking like, unless any, is there anybody who's not said anything want to jump in? I won't pull you up, but um, okay. Danny's saying, bye, thanks for an interesting talk. Um, okay, if we've got nothing else, if nobody's got if nobody's got anything that they want to comment, now I will go back to what I was reading off before before Bonnie put me straight and told well, me to I'll shut up. Do you want me to say it now? You say it. Go on. You can do it because I can't find so, the bloody yeah, things. This was our Libertarian Communist Twenty Twenty, but we did start a series last night called At the Cafe last month called At the Cafe, and the first meeting was laboring in vain, and we were thinking of doing it every month. And it's called At the Cafe because the idea is to have probably shorter presentations than we had today, um, you know, more just 10, 15 minutes, and then sort of try to pretend we're at a cafe in a Zoom meeting and uh, have more discussion. And we haven't actually picked the next topic. Yes, we have. But really, have we? All right, but do you, what is it? Deck, tell us what the topic is because you're doing it. Well, I'm doing it, am I? I'm doing it. You what did is it? What is it? What have I volunteered for? I was drunk. Oh, right. I better what? tell you what you volunteered for. Um, because the, one of the things that came out of the last discussion we had, which was uh, the labouring in vain uh, right. about the Labour Party, was um, how do we um, get to 
building some kind of viable working class movement that's cl um, class conscious working class movement or a revolutionary movement how do we get there okay um, how do we get from here to there so I think the idea then, if that's the topic, that's which the topic. also relates to what's happening, what we talked about today, is uh, a quite a difficult one, which is why I don't <laughs> think the text is planning on having all the answers. I think what? Been, this is the first I've heard of it. We had after the meeting. Um, and, uh, but I think that's why it needs to be a discussion. It needs to be people coming along and really coming up with their own ideas about what we should do. So it's not sort of the ACG giving our ideas about no, no, what no. this is, but getting people to come along 